0: Five ten. How much would this cost in Canada?
1: Uh, that that's like uh twenty, twenty dollars, fifteen euros. Fifteen. Well, yeah. It's, it's ten. ten.
2: Yeah. It's not not so different. Well, yeah. cheaper maybe. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. So I guess I guess there's no exchange rate for for rock. <laughs> you know, there should be a table so we get like euros dollars exchange rate. <laughs> I'm Garth Mullins. This is Crackdown. Episode 5, The Portugal Paradox. It's a sunny April morning in Lisbon, Portugal. I'm in the Set Rioge district, with tree-lined streets and fancy hotels. I've come to Portugal looking for answers. Nearly 20 years ago, the Portuguese government decriminalized the simple possession of drugs for personal use. Ever since, the very word Portugal has become a kind of shorthand. It's a demand for a kind of drug user liberation, a yearning to end prohibition. BC's top health official, Dr. Bonnie Henry, recently called on the province to follow Portugal's lead and decriminalize. She said that decriminalizing possession would help curb overdoses. Crackdown's editorial board was curious: What's it actually like over there? And so I hopped on a plane. The first place I check out is called the Dissuasion Commission. I'm here with Sam and Lisa, two of Crackdown's producers, and Enrique Pintquil, a local journalist and translator. Inside, it's basically a waiting room, like a doctor's office. There are three teenagers in a group. Enrique walks up and says hello. (laughs) At first, they're a little shy about our microphones, but one of the guys introduces himself. Let's call him Manuel. Manuel is 18, he's wearing a black hoodie, and just like me, he's never been to the dissuasion commission before he doesn't really know what to expect.
3: So I was sent here and I have to obey the law and laws and laws are laws.
1: I asked Manuel how he ended up here. He says he started to smoke hash about a year ago when he was 17. He mostly just likes to smoke at parties, like the one he was at just a couple of weeks ago.
4: He was enjoying the,
1: the day before Easter.
3: They were all together in a park in, the, in a Lisbon suburb, and it was night, and they were making noise and drinking and smoking, I asked him how many of you were in the park, eight, nine, uh, something like that. We're not normally in a, in a big group, it's just us. But then all of a sudden there was a car with the intervention police, and they, they were kind of um, I mean abrupt and we were all surprised because they were using shotguns they put out, uh, they put us on uh, against the wall and, and it was kind of uh, scary
4: um, and
3: they just asked us do, do we have something I was the first one saying yes I do have substance uh, and, and and I asked him how, how, how much did you have and then he said well there was very little amount, it was less than a gram of hashish.
1: A gram costs about $10. Not much, but one of Manuel's friends had more. Like 300 bucks worth. Manuel says the cops confiscated their drugs. They detained the group and took them back to the police station. Manuel's buddy is charged with a crime. He's told he'll have to go to court. But Manuel had less than five grams on him. And that means that instead of court, he has to come here to the dissuasion commission. A tall, handsome looking guy in his 40s appears in the doorway. This is Nuno Capaz, one of the people who runs Lisbon's dissuasion commission. I'm surprised to see his sweatshirt, stubble, and hiking shoes. For some reason, I expected a suit.
5: Um, can, if you, do you mind following me? We have a larger room where we can sit.
1: We walk down the hall and into a kind of boardroom. Nuno sits on one side of the table and gestures for Manuel to come in. He looks like a kid who's been called into the principal's office. Alert, but not too nervous.
3: He says, please come closer. Please, please, I insist, have a seat here. These are just radio journalists, and I'm going to be a, a little more formal than I, than I used to be. And you know why you're here, right? Uh, you were caught with a little hashish. Do you finish junior, junior high? And he says, yes um but not the academic one the vocational one which means the professional uh stream
5: Um,
3: and do you live uh with your family with your parents and your brother right and he says yes and and is your email this one febras with a z febras means pork chops pork chops with a z Nuno says, well, regarding your record, you know, this is an administrative sanction, right? This is just like uh, a traffic sanction, like uh, driving without your seatbelt, you know, because this is uh, the first time you you have been warned. This is a first situation and you are not a regular.
1: We are going to suspend your sanction. This means Manuel won't have to pay a fine. He's told the commission that he doesn't have a drug problem. It's just a recreational thing. Nuno seems to accept that, and that means that Manuel won't have to do any treatment either, at least not at this time.
3: Uh, Nuno insists uh, if you show up here a second time, you would get an actual sanction. He says everything just like in the ads on television about uh, medicines or aspirins they have to read the, the, the small letter thing. Blah,
5: blah, blah, blah,
2: blah, blah.
1: And then Nuno slides a piece of paper and a pen across the table. For the first time, Manuel looks a little worried.
4: Uh,
3: am I okay? Is going to happen anything to me? And he says, no, no, it's just part of the of your record, it's okay.
1: Nuno tells Manuel that the commission has social workers and psychologists. If he starts to worry about his hash use, he should just give him the call. Manuel responds that he actually has been having a rough time lately, but that he's already seeing a psychologist. He signs the paper and slides it back to Nuno.
3: And uh, finally Nuno says, well done. From our part, I think it's everything. Nuno says goodbye and and go for it. Forza, forza means uh, strength. May the power be with you.
2: Can we,
1: can, we, can, we, can we let him go? Thanks for talking to us. I'm sorry the cops pulled guns on you. No. This happens <laughs> where I'm from too. Yeah.
4: yeah. Make a big success. Thank you. This.
6: What did you think of the dissuasion commission?
1: So thinking about this, like if we were in Canada, for sure, cops coming up to people with guns and, and that kind of that, that kind of the interaction that happened, that the kid tells us about uh, that seems familiar. But then it's the different streams of, of what happens next. So the the guy, his friend who's who's holding more drugs. Yeah, he's going to court. He's going to the regular criminal justice system. And I guess that would happen here. But he doesn't. And um, at the Crackdown editorial board, we have a lot of people who've had um, lots of interactions with law enforcement and jail time that are kind of related to possession or around that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, Dean Wilson, who's on the board, likes to say lots of drug users end up doing life in three-month bits. And that just doesn't happen in Portugal. And that's that's pretty amazing.
2: And what do you think about the um, the people that we saw uh, in the waiting room? It's different than what I thought
1: it would be. You know, like I didn't think that we'd encounter a waiting room full of uh, kids who are smoking pot, basically. And I didn't realize that that's 90 percent of what the commission handles. So Nuno, the first thing he seems to want to figure out is, is someone um, an addict or not, as he says, and and is someone using opioids or not or, or, or hard drugs? And then they kind of stream them in two ways, and there's lots of people that come through, and it seems like it's just a rite of passage, you know, that it seems like a a trip to the principal's office. So it just seems like most of what they do is kind of lecture kids not to smoke so much pot.
2: Right, which is um, why I'm glad you asked Nuno what would have happened if it had been someone like you who had come in to the dissuasion commission when you were a young adult instead of um, somebody like Manuel.
1: So me, I used uh, injection heroin for over a decade, Okay. if i was a portuguese guy what what would have happened to me here well if you were caught by the
5: police in the possession of uh, um, less than one gram of heroin probably would... not a I, I gram a day habit okay so but you're probably buying several times mm-hmm. yeah, i'm probably i'm fairly sure Where normally people uh, normally drug addicts don't buy a huge amount of yeah. drug at a the time yeah. they normally yeah. buy smaller doses so if the if you would be caught, you would be notified to be present here, and eventually you would be, you, you would make a suggestion of referral to some sort of treatment,
1: so, uh, which could uh,
5: include could include um, a week or two, cleanup uh, program. It could include also. Um, a methadone program substitution program if you wanted to enlist a, a 12-step program living one year in a therapeutic community on the countryside that would also be available all all uh, planned and all without gaps in between so you don't uh, relapse in those periods
1: so it took me a long time till i was really able to stop doing heroin i'm still on methadone now okay. and i i i hope that i would to take what was offered to me, but I also know that I haven't always done that. If I just didn't show up at the methadone bus or if I was just, you know, not complying with what the, what the dissuasion commission was suggesting. Okay. Uh, do, do they send a letter to me and tell me to come back? What, yeah. and yes. Then, like- it's, uh, well,
5: that's what would happen if the person is not willing to uh, get back to treatment or restart treatment. We will probably have to apply a sanction to that person. And normally the sanctions we tend to apply uh, for uh, drug addicts are the regular presentation. Uh, it means that the person has to, to check
1: in with a certain institution on a regular basis, like once a week or something like that. I don't mean to continue down this road, but I had a probation officer and I don't think I made every appointment. Yeah. Maybe I made half of them, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm like kind of in the middle. I'm not the I'm not the most uh, fucked up, you know, but
5: not also the more compliant one. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which, well, no,
1: I'm not the most compliant. Yeah, I, I would true. say
5: that, we, well, we do not work as a probation officer, yeah. but our role legally, it's more or less similar. But again, we, we work under the Ministry of Health. Yeah. So if you do not comply, you do not continue or under the, the jurisdiction of the Ministry of Justice or a court system. So there's,
1: there's no path that leads me to jail no. for this? No, In for innocent, over, no. Over a Over a gram. No.
5: For usage, no. People thought that when we decriminalize drug usage, they thought, oh, so people can walk around with less than five grams of ashes from now on. And it's, it's not like that. We couldn't just do that because that would be against the con- international conventions that we signed. And so uh, there's this list of illicit substances and there has to be some sort of uh, penalty for people that are caught with it. But the, the international con- conventions doesn't say... That you need to have criminal sanctions or a criminal record. You personally,
2: beyond the like, international relations piece of yeah. this, do you, do you think that it's the right thing to do, to have an administrative process?
5: Yes, I think it's much better than having a criminal one.
2: Is it better than having no process?
5: Yes, I think so. In some cases, yes, because we can do, because by having the process that allows us to do an assessment of the sort of users. There are people who have problems with the substance that they are using and that therefore should benefit of some sort of follow-up meetings, motivational meetings, referral, treatment, counseling, whatever. It depends on the cases and an administrative procedure, an administrative offense procedure seems to be to be the proper legal framework to deal with those situations.
6: So what did you think of what Nuno was telling you there?
1: I really I really tried to get Nuno to tell me how I was going to jail in Portugal. And there was no – there's no way to get there. So I think that that was really something. But I, I kind of learned from him that he operates a big sieve. And he's trying to sieve out, I guess, people like me. We stay in the sieve and all the kids who are doing pot, the 90 percent go through. And then he's trying to divert, as he says – People I guess people who have uh, who are wired in one way or another using opioids or something all the time try to divert them to different programs uh, and and he says he kind of puts the the energy in and, and leans into that more
6: but if you are caught with more than a gram, you are not going in the same sieve
1: oh yeah, different <laughs> you're just going to jail. <laughs> So, according to Nuno, if I was a Portuguese dope fiend, I would have probably been referred to a low-threshold methadone program. In Portugal, that means meeting a methadone van at one of the scheduled stops. And so I came to this empty, windswept parking lot on the outskirts of town. We're near a highway and some treeless, vacant lots. About a dozen people are waiting around. Some are sitting on the curb, and others are in their cars. A white van rolls up. It looks kind of like an ice cream truck. People get out of their cars and off the curb. They form a line at the window. There's a few pretty obvious differences from my methadone clinic. For one thing, there's the dogs. Oh, look at
2: at that little guy.
1: (laughs) Most of the people just drink their juice and leave. So after about half an hour, almost everyone's gone, except for one guy. He's wearing neon yellow and blue cycling gear. And he flags me down.
3: He, he's in a, in a rush, but he's going to talk to us.
1: Do you need translate? Or? Hello. Hey, hello. I'm Garth. Good to meet you. Yeah. Uh, on take methadone too in yeah. Canada. When I say the word Canada, his eyes light up. He starts air drumming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's as if his drum kit surrounds him, like in 360 degrees.
4: Rush, rush. 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 What, well, no, no, Yeah, right. don't <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> He pulls out his phone, scrolls around for a bit, and hits play.
4: This is retro,
3: the best drummer in the world. My, the the drummer
7: is The... best.
1: Me and the guy are both air drumming now. And another man wearing a dress shirt and a lanyard looks over at us, puzzled. He says he's never heard of this song before. And the bike guy says something in Portuguese.
3: You're you're a bunch of assholes. You don't know him. (laughs) I'm
4: shocked because I don't know the, the band.
1: The guy with the lanyard is Ugo Fria. He's a psychologist and team manager with the NGO that runs the Methadone program here. Ugo says he's really more of an arcade fire kind of guy.
4: This location, it was uh, synced because it's near a trafficking neighborhood and using areas over there behind
1: that building. Ugo points across the field to a couple of public housing towers. Some people come from there and some people come from further away even walking up to 30 minutes to get here. Hugo says they only do a piss test on the first day here. They hand people a cup and if they want, they can find somewhere to pee, maybe behind the van, and bring it back right away. I tell him it seems a lot better than Canada. When I want a methadone, it was just easier to get it from a drug dealer than a doctor. Ugo nods, he says he doesn't worry about the black market methadone.
4: You,
1: you said there's no black market for methadone?
4: No, there is a black market. Oh, there market. is, okay. You don't care? No, no, no problem for us. For some of them, it, it works. It's better than to inject every day with Erwin. And, you know.
1: This blows my mind because in Canada, the doctors and the people who run the methadone program, they hold it tight in their yes, fist. That's why the problem
4: is. Uh, it's like the the law of the oferta procura. I would say the to find and like the economical supply law. and demand. Yes. Yeah. If you if you um, hide your products. Everyone will, 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 will want it, and there's a lot of uh, uh, side markets, black markets. I've yes. Yeah. A, if you give them give the methadone to, you, to everyone, or if everyone can get methadone easily, that's not a problem. This is a medication, people need this medication, people need very much this medication, so we have to provide it.
6: So it seems like if you lived in Portugal, you would have probably ended up at the dissuasion commission and they would have likely sent you to this methadone bus.
1: Yeah, and and that's great because right now there are like two parallel tracks or they they have been in my life where you get hassled by the cops or you get some kind of entanglement with law enforcement. And then separately, you have to go fight your way onto some kind of methadone program or some, some kind of treatment. You know, I, I suppose uh, there's there's drug court, and that m- maybe sentences people to some kinds of programs. But uh, I I think for the most part, even opioid substitution treatment isn't really available everywhere and as easily as it should be. There's still a lot of rules and a lot of things to trip you up if you try and get on it. There isn't someone who, if they catch you with drugs, will actually try to get you to to be on it.
6: You really think uh, in the '90s that you would have been okay with being sent to a dissuasion commission and going to the methadone bus.
1: You're right. It probably would have taken me missing my dissuasion commission appointment and then not going to the bus and, and stuff like that. But I mean, I was buying diverted methadone and, and lots of people do. So to start you down that path uh, instead of a path to jail uh, would have been definitely preferable. After visiting the Disuasion Commission and the Methadone van, I start to think about Due. So many of the programs we have in Vancouver were won by the city's drug user activists. So if you want to understand what works and what doesn't in Canada, these are the people to talk to. And so I wanted to talk to people like that here in Portugal. I walk across town in the rain looking for a drug user center called In Moraria. By the time I reach the center, light rain has turned into a downpour and I'm drenched. Two guys can see that I need to get out of the rain and invite me inside. In is basically the size of a living room. It's got lime green walls and some low-slung couches. Someone is sitting on pretty much every surface in the room. It has a little sandwich assembly line going in the back, just like at Vandu, and there's coffee. Most people, like me, are pretty drenched, but happy to be inside. One of the guys behind the desk hands me a green plastic envelope. It says, Redução de Riscos. That means in Portuguese, reduce the risk. It's a little kit with syringes, water, citric, cookers, cottons, and a condom. A woman in her 40s bounds into the center and says hello. She introduces herself as Magda and says, let's go next door. It'll be quieter.
7: You want a lighter? If, not now. You have? Oh, if I need. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's cool. Not now.
1: Yeah. We walk through a door and it smells like a lumberyard. New construction. Bare plywood on the walls.
7: Can I have a look uh, around in the facilities? Yeah.
1: To my surprise, there's a sink, a stainless steel table and cupboards. It's a supervised injection room. Easy to spot. Even eight time zones from home. Magda tells me this place is brand new and it's not sanctioned Does, yet.
7: Uh, okay, so my name is Magda Freire. I work to, got in Moraria. I was invited to work as a peer counselor and as a woman for my community, for the people that use drugs.
1: You said you were a, dr- you're a drug user. Yes, I'm well, a drug user. What's a, a, a opioids heroin method on me? Oh, what about my, you?
7: My school, <laughs> at 12 in high school, I started smoking ashish, Tried cocaine first time in, at 13, and then I was hooked on Erin when I was 16, smoking and sn- sniffing Erin, because I thought only inject drug users would get hooked. There was no arm reduction at the time, no information at all.
1: Magda says that no one really knew what to do about her addiction. At one point, she was sent to a farm to detox. It was kind of like a work-based therapy thing. But some of the people there could be nasty, and one of them hit her, so she fled and relapsed. Psychiatrists tried every combination of antidepressants they could think of. She said it felt like they were going to fry her brain.
7: Portuguese society was trying to learn how to address the problem of drug use, you know. So, Do you think it has? It has. You know, what works? In the beginning, I think it was amazing that we decriminalized the drug use, of course. That was a super cool thing. We are very well known abroad because of it.
4: That's why we're here, yeah? Yes, Uh,
7: and uh, it worked. Things became a little bit better. The the government helps you. There's a process if you want to, to go to treatment. They provided uh, needle exchange to people. Even doctors learned how, were learning how to deal with us, to deal with the situation. Families had to be teach also how to deal with the problem. You know? And uh, of course it worked in one way.
1: But in another way, it didn't. It's still illegal to sell drugs in Portugal. In fact, the government pitched decriminalization to the public as a way to free up resources so cops could spend more time chasing dealers and traffickers that means that drug users in portugal just like in north america got to buy their drugs on the black market
7: it's like it's a, it's a paradox
1: you know it's like a gray area so prohibition is still alive and well in portugal of course it is you know you are
7: even in in the, in the questions of violence i saw that now the dealers are young boys that grow up in the ghetto you know and they don't respect drug users at all they eat them you know hardly they want to break break your pride completely I'm from a, a time where people use drugs to enjoy so mm-hmm. I, I I don't understand why like you know, to live with shame and with stigma and to be discriminated, it's even more toxic than drugs. You know, and I felt that. In this job, I felt accepted in my choice and I end up healing a lot of things, getting rid of a lot of labels that I have put it in myself. The first one was shame.
1: I really, I really agree with you and I'm starting to notice that in this job, I have to talk about my drug use and it's changing that in me too oh, yes, you know
7: because it, it it's the way to empower out other drug users you know and uh, it's not our fault that the, the drugs we like are illegal I will like drugs forever so but I can't let drugs use me anymore, right. uh, So I want a little bit more I want more for me you know
1: Thanks Thank for you. so much time with us, Thank you know.
4: So
2: probably gonna do it. In the the side? Oh yeah.
1: I'm have I'm in the northern city of Porto to meet up with Rui Miguel Coimbra-Morage. Rui is on the board of CASO, Portugal's only drug user union.
0: Okay, we will on
1: yeah. Board, yeah. Thanks for taking us, Rui. No problem. So, uh, when you... When you talked to us earlier, um, you said that you could tell us about the dark side of the Portugal model. Do you remember that? Yeah. What's the dark side of the Portugal model?
0: Well, uh, the dark side is that the the implementation of the policies is growing in paradox. So uh, we have this uh, uh, on the law that uh, is a bit schizoid thing that you can buy and it's not a crime, but where do you buy it? heroin don't, 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 doesn't appear on, the, on trees and on supermarkets yeah. to buy you have to go to places uh, where, where a violence uh, environment is concentrated you know use uh, dealers, uh, users um, and uh,
1: such as where we're going. yeah yeah So he is in his uh, 40s. He wears a t-shirt and a suit jacket. It's a look that works in a room full of politicians, but also in a room full of drug users. I do the same thing sometimes. While we drive, we start talking about the old days. Like me, he did a lot of drugs when he was in grad school. Back at that time in Vancouver, I was using heroin most of the time. What was your, what were you doing here?
0: Uh, the same, but uh, at the same time doing other things. And with heroin, I managed to be using and uh, studying and working for a long period. When I started uh, using cocaine, I put a dealer in my apartment.
1: Oh, wow. So the dealer was your roommate? Yes, the
0: apartment was mine, and uh, he needed a place. So that probably fucked up school pretty quick,
1: hey? Yes, I have uh, destroyed myself a little bit. Six months later, he had no money, no dope, and his veins had collapsed. He eventually got into residential treatment and started taking buprenorphine. For a few years, all he did was the odd line at a party. Did your veins come back? Yes. Not mine. They're they're gone forever. I don't know where where they went. To the inside of the the body. Yeah. Yeah, afraid how afraid
0: of you? <laughs> yeah, they, I think they are. Last year, I I, I found the vine, but then I, I I fucked up the vine pretty quickly. Now I I'm finding in in different places, but I'm uh, taking care of them so that I can use till two hundred years. To yeah. Yeah.
1: The car winds through the Portuguese countryside until the fancy hotels and tourists disappear. Rui pulls over to the side of the road. What neighbourhood are we in right now? Uh,
0: Bairro do Circo, Neighbourhood of uh, Circo Siege.
1: Siege. Like a battle. Rui says it can feel a bit like you're under siege here. The cops even sometimes set up checkpoints, blocking all the entrances and exits to try and catch dealers. As we get out of the car off in the distance, I see a ruined building. Sort of uh, old brick and concrete structure with no roof. This a bit is of graffiti, uh, yeah.
0: old stone. Uh, yeah. stone.
1: We make our way through a couple of smashed rooms, rubble piled in the corners, grass growing everywhere. The ground is strewn with garbage, including hundreds of those little green plastic envelopes containing harm reduction supplies. So this is uh,
0: the place of use, and if, uh, when it's um Raining or something it's very crowded yeah injectors go to the cave
1: <laughs> so you smoke there and you go to the inject, go to the cave deeper into the smashed structure on one side is a small room with around ten people. They're sitting on a low ledge against the walls. They're passing around a pipe and they invite me to join the circle. The yeah, can I just sit here hey. What? Uh, how much do you come here to this place?
2: Yeah. No. How
1: often?
2: Every day. Every day.
7: Holiday. Every day.
5: Every day. Every day. So what? What's it like here? Here? Yeah. The space. Yeah. The
7: space. Yeah. The space.
4: Like many people
7: come here. But the convivial. Uh,
1: is friendly. Yeah. So sometimes people share.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's not uh, very. It's it's not uh, so usual among uh, users of cocaine.
1: A wiry woman wearing a bedazzled tank top and Chuck Taylors walks up to us. She tells us that Caso hired her to work in the space.
7: I clean everything. I put everything. in And you're giving people like um, supplies if they need. Yeah. I'm just me clean, alone, the the space. Oh yeah? (laughs) Yeah. I like doing these things.
5: So it means
1: you have to... I
7: like to help the the people, so...
1: And then, all of a sudden, a flutter of anxiety ripples through the group. But I can't tell what's going on.
4: The
0: police is uh, there, and so people are a little bit stressed.
1: Where's the police? In the neighborhood. Oh, let's get the fuck out of here. No, it's no problem. No? No. (laughs) This is where I come from. When the police come, we leave. (laughs) Everybody do that. Yeah. (laughs) Hui explains that somebody saw cops patrolling the neighborhood just outside, and they had their shotguns out. They don't take people's drugs away?
5: Sometimes.
1: Yeah. Have you had your drugs taken away by the police? Yeah. Yeah. How much? How often?
7: Mm, Two times is about ten years in yeah. drugs
1: so Well thanks very much for talking to us and Welcome. I'm glad that I'm glad that you do this for for the people that's yeah. that's great thank you
2: Welcome.
1: I've shot up in places like this There is one ruined warehouse in San Francisco I can still remember vividly It's the same thing It must be miserable here when it's raining and I know what it's like to grind all day, doing risky and undignified shit, just so that you can huddle in this kind of place, to keep the dope sickness away, and to hide from the cops. In North America, we dream that there's a place where this doesn't happen. And I guess I hope that Portugal would be that place. After hanging out in the ruins for a while, Rui and I walk back to the car, and on the way, we start to talk about fentanyl. There's nothing about the Portuguese system that prevents the same kind of thing from happening here. In Vancouver and in North America, we have so many people dying from the overdose yeah. crisis, fentanyl and stuff. You don't have that here yet, but one of the things we we're asking for is a safe drug supply so that people won't, won't uh, die from fentanyl anymore. Do you there, guys? Uh, there are, I know guys
0: that uh, search fentanyl, even if they have uh, heroin. I was recently in Bucharest and the guy was asking me, but I have fentanyl, it's much stronger. Why do you want heroin?
1: Yeah, we have people who want fentanyl as well. Um, and it's not, it's not fentanyl itself, it's the unknown quantity. You know, so you don't know how strong it's going to be. And, and if it was regulated, you know, if it was legal, then you could get, ah, oh, fentanyl, I know how strong it will be. Ah, oh, heroin, I know how strong, you know, cocaine should be regulated. It makes
0: no no sense that this lie of uh, prohibitionism that's so more than s- a hundred years of lying uh, that begins with commerce, not with uh, worries about human condition. And uh, for me it's still the commerce because it created a so huge monster of making money for some that uh, it's, uh, it's difficult to, to regulate because there's lots of uh, interests, I mean,
1: yeah. Rui agrees that drugs should be legal, regulated, but there isn't the same sense of urgency here about that because there isn't nearly the same death toll. uh,
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you.
1: 45 years ago, there was a revolution against fascism in Portugal. 20 years ago, there was a revolution against the drug war. But it's not complete. Drugs are still illegal in Portugal. Drug users are still marginalized. Vancouver and Portugal both did something amazing 20 years ago. In Vancouver, it was the fight for a safe injection site. But those moments have become calcified, institutionalized. In some ways, activists have been written out or tokenized. Meanwhile, the crisis deepens, overwhelming North America and creeping across Europe. When I was 19, I was caught with drugs and thrown in jail in California. I can still remember the moment when I realized that almost all of the 27 guys in my pod were there for some kind of drug-related offense. And almost all the guys in the pods above, beside, and across from us were in there for drugs, too. The pods were stacked into wings, and those wings extended into complexes. And those complexes stretched out across the desert. Just an endless sea of cages to hold people caught with drugs. We need to empty those jails of drug users. Canada needs to stop arresting 100,000 people every year for drug possession. But it can't stop there. Drug user activists in Canada and Portugal and everywhere else. We know that the world needs a safe, legal drug supply. Those moments in history, defeating fascism or decriminalizing drugs, they're beacons. They show what's possible. We need to remember that revolutionary spirit. This song, broadcast on Portuguese radio in 1974, was the signal to launch the revolution. We need to broadcast that signal again. Crackdown is produced on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. Usually. But this episode, we were in Portugal. And all that travel ain't cheap. If you like what we do, please support us on patreon.com slash crackdownpod. And thank you to those of you who already have. You'll find bonus content there, and it's always free. Crackdown's editorial board is Simona Marsh, Sheldon Castor, Greg Fess, Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Dave Murray, Al Fowler, Laura Shaver, and Sharice ki RIP Sharice. Crackdown is produced by Alexander Kim, Lisa Hale, Sam Fenn, and Gordon Kadic. This month our lead producers were Sam Fenn and Lisa Hale. Sam, it seemed like you were talking to an awful lot of people just in the month before we went to Portugal.
2: Yeah, uh, there's so many people who helped us get all of the scenes uh, that you heard in this episode. And so I want to thank, in particular, the Portuguese-Canadian journalist Susana Ferreira for connecting us with uh, so many of the people you hear in the story. Um, we've linked to one of her excellent stories on the webpage. Um, thanks as well to Hui and Hugo and Enrique, as well as uh, Diana Castro, who works for the NGO APDES. Uh, thanks to Sarah Tuppen veloso Joanna Canedo, and Sonia Ferreira. All of these people really helped us find our way around the Portuguese drug scene, um, and so the story wouldn't have been possible without them.
1: Our science advisor is Ryan McNeil, lead of the Qualitative and Community-Based Research Program of the BC Center on Substance Use. Ryan is also an assistant professor at the Department of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. I'm Garth Mullins, host, writer, and executive producer. You can follow me on Twitter at Garth Mullins. Original score written and produced by Sam Fenn, Jacob Dryden, Kai Paulson, and me. Our theme song was written by Sam Fenn and me, with accompaniment from Dave Jens and Ben Appenheimer. We make the podcast with funds from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, and anywhere else you find your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Please, it helps. We're also on CITR and Co-op Radio in Vancouver, and we'd be happy to be on your radio station too. Follow us on Twitter at CrackdownPod. Our website is CrackdownPod.com. Email info at CrackdownPod.com. Patricia Fenn does our transcripts, available on CrackdownPod.com shortly after each episode is posted. She also helped us with the Portuguese translation and pronunciation in this episode. Obrigado, Patricia. Our next episode drops at the end of June. See you then. So, what am I saying, Lisa? So, obrigado. Obrigado, Patricia. Obrigado, Patricia. <laughs> obrigado, Patricia. So it's
6: just ending with, I think, more of a slight
1: you. Obrigado, Patricia. Obrigado. Okay.
4: You have been listening to A Sided Media Production. C I D E D. Find out more at sidedmedia.ca.